If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about albums that we think are unsung classics, and then you guys tell us if you're right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. to episode 58 of the Unsung Podcast. On the last episode, we were discussing Sea of the Dying Dow by Shells. You guys have decided that that record does indeed make it into discography, so thank you very much to everybody who listened and voted. On this episode, we sat down to discuss From the Choir Girl Hotel by Tori Amos, but things kind of escalated, so what was originally going to be a dissection of her fourth album turned into an entire career retrospective of the artist so this is part one of the episode and we hope you enjoy it Uh, you're listening to the unsung podcast i am your host mark fraser and i'm joined by the two biggest ramonas on earth uh yeah to my right is uh, Tim says Glas- to my- is uh, Glasgow's biggest Witherspoon fanatic is uh, Mr. Chris Cusack. How many Witherspoons are in Glasgow, Chris? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think they've Greater Glasgow or Glasgow City Council? Glasgow City Council. I'm going to say thirteen. Okay, I don't I was, know. I don't know the answer, but I've just thought I was going to say twelve. But then I have a feeling that we'd probably find it's probably nearer like thirty. Because once you go, like, even you go south side, there's about three or four. There's one in Charlotte's for sure, which yeah. is super fucking cheap. And also looks first super fucking cheap. Yeah, maybe. So for folks that are unaware, uh, or I'm sure some of them will actually sympathise, even for listeners down south, uh, the owner of the chain Weatherspoons, which is famous for being cheap and shite, um, but, you know, ironically endearing to tightwads who dress like tramps. Like such, me. Such as ourselves. <laughs> um, the owner is a very, very hard line Brexiteer, uh, Tim, his name Tim Martin? Yes. Uh, and he uh, has paid for this little propaganda magazine to be handed out around the homes in the UK and they've just started to arrive in dribs and drabs and I got mine today and it's something to behold. Uh, just uh, the sort of overtones of like fascist rhetoric as well are fascinating. The, the constant references to uh, cabals and apparatchiks and metropolitan elites the elites, metropolitan elites working against democracy mm-hmm. is just, it's absolutely peppered with them. Well, you would say that as one of these lefty Ramoners. Don't you believe it, in the will of the people, Christopher? Isn't it fascinating, though, that a guy who owns <laughs> literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bars and is incredibly wealthy and has Tony Abbott speaking in this magazine on his behalf and the other professor that he gets is from like Cambridge University. Sees other people as the elite. Sees other people as the elites. It's like, wow, man. Yeah, how fucking delicate. That is twisted. That is really twisted. 
and he refers to things like the Financial Times, that bastion of left-wing politics. <laughs> <laughs> it's been like bleeding heart. Uh, yeah, so that's that's been going on, and that arrived today, and it's the first time I think we've used a prop on the show. Yeah. I didn't actually... That's the sound there of, we go. That's to prove of Brexit. Something paper exists. Um, so to my left is uh, the Daniel Bryan of podcasting, David mm-hmm. Weaver. A um, vegan extremist. Militant. Vegan extremist environmentalist uh, that has turned heel as a result of his... That means gone, become a bad guy, doesn't it? Become bad. non-wrestlers. Yeah. It means you're a bad guy in wrestling, but it probably means you're also more interesting. Mark, you have some input in that. You're a wrestling fan. Um, you have become more interesting since you became a heel it's true <laughs> would you say that Tim Martin is a heel or would you just say he's T- a cunt Tim Martin is most certainly a heel he's a heel yeah. Yeah. he is interesting Tim Martin is the Jack Swagger of, uh, <laughs> is, of British is politics Piers Morgan the ultimate heel in Britain he's like Vince McMahon Pe- no, Pe- see that's the thing Piers Morgan isn't the ultimate heel he's a bit of a comedic goofball like Farage is yeah, more, but he's pretty uh, dangerous. More of a heel. Oh yeah, but well, no, because yeah, because there's no. I was speaking to a couple of people. Is he not just a buffoon? And like people's aunties or uncles watch him and go, "Oh, he's actually got a really good point about that or that." And it's like, no, he truly does not. But I, I think he's a buffoon. I really struggle to feel threatened by Piers Morgan. I find people like, but he's a presenter. Nigel Farage or a... more destructive overall for what he brought about. I agree, um, with, I agree with Dave on this one I think yeah Because he's on TV Every single fucking morning He's in a very influential position To spout He certainly yeah. is In an influential position Yeah He is a balloon though Yeah And I mean there's no doubt He's been an absolute Such a roundly mocked figure He's a weapon a of the time, highest order <laughs> He's a weapon I, An absolute I will say I, I can't muster even Half the hatred for Piers Morgan That I have effortlessly At my disposal for Katie Hopkins I don't think she's still around and don't never hear she's been banned from a few of our platforms yeah but she does a lot of stuff she appears in podcasts in the states now she appeared in that Dave Rubin show but she's like a fucking Trojan Charlotte she's like a far right character right but Piers Morgan is a mainstream presenter on on ITV you know daytime true he has a much wider true and and, I don't want to be devil's advocate here and and, and take a bullet for Piers Morgan (laughs) he he was on that Piers Morgan show in the States though debating Mm -hmm. Alex Jones and arguing for gun control so yeah it's that that thing he's he's a balloon I I just don't find them to be a particularly nefarious figure you were uh, talking before we started about the very very entertaining interview that he did what's the guy with Ross Greer a Scottish uh, Green MP who's that who's like MSP yes he's only 23 or 24 24 I believe Um, and they were debating uh, Mm. The legacy of Winston Churchill, whether or not he was a white supremacist mass murderer. Yeah, because Ross Greer called him that on in on Twitter. Um, and the and thing is, Piers twi- Morgan had got very, very offended, <laughs> flustered, <laughs> uh, and invited him onto the show and called him uh, a thick ginger twat. Um, there's all kinds not of offensive. there was all kinds of exchanges, I believe. Uh, Ross also called him a glazed, honey, a glazed gammon, honey glazed which, gammon. Uh, Piers Morgan then said was racist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, the exchange is fantastic. They've got some other historian on who's obviously just a Churchill uh, enthusiast. Well, he's, his grandfather was friends with Churchill, apparently. Yeah. And I mean, all Ross Greer is doing is saying he is a complex personality and he had some really bad traits to him. You can't just completely suck his arse the entire time. You know, he's a, he, he's a bad guy and there's reason that a lot of people hate Churchill. Uh, and Morgan completely, you know, won't have any of this. I, th- I think the problem is that Piers Morgan was trying to drag a Twitter debate into the real world, and yeah. Twitter is just all about hyperbole and reaction. Yeah, and exactly. Ross Morgan, M- Morgan, uh, uh, Ross Greer, Ross Greer. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting my names caught, confused here. Ross Greer was clearly trolling online. Yeah, the, I mean the piece about he didn't actually. Yeah, Winston Churchill being a white supremacist mass murderer. Right. Th- yeah. Technically, he justifies those statements, but also it's clearly a... a, a it's a bit it, of patter. <laughs> it's a bit of patter designed to get a rise. Because uh, to be fair to that other historian who also thinks about a balloon, Gandhi was incredibly racist against blacks in South mm. Africa. Like, v- notoriously so. Like, none of these figures, as he says, he's trying to get a well-rounded pic- picture of him. And you have to, like, acknowledge Winston Churchill's far less than admirable qualities as well as 
uh, the fact that he did a lot of good during the Second World War. But I mean, like Morgan is just looking for an excuse to pontificate. See when he sits back halfway through with his arms folded, it's like when your dad's giving you a row. And it really, <laughs> it, the whole second half of that, that argument just descends into that. And then the mum can interject and try to be the voice of reason that the, the other host and, and Ross just smiling throughout like a teenager that's like... I know yeah, I'm right, so fuck just off. Get, like, <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting that... Um, that does spark a debate, which probably should be had, is something that's also been airbrushed out of history, is the fact that a lot of people before World War Two in Britain did support, like, what the Nazi party were doing, you know? The royal family, you mean? No, like, a lot of the public were, like... <laughs> the royal family? Yeah, the royal family like, were, yeah, yeah, massive, A lot of the public were, like, pro-Hitler, pro-Hitler's policies. It wasn't until so they started was, invading countries until it became a problem. Henry, you know, and I guess that gets airbrushed out of history because we won the war. Walt Disney you know? was a massive admirer of Hitler at yeah, one so point. Yeah, so was the H.P. Lovecraft was a, you know, he was a lot of things, as well. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, was it not Henry Ford? Did he not have some dabblings with Hitler as well at some point? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's like, I mean, absolutely, of course, yeah. IBM created the calculation system that the Nazis used in concentration camps. Notoriously, Coca-Cola created Fanta because uh, an embargo was put on the cola syrup so that they couldn't crack the German market in case the Germans won the war. So because Franco was fascist, they were able to get orange concentrate effortlessly from Spain. So they invented Fanta for that market in case the Germans uh, were victorious. So every time you drink Fanta? Nazi cola. Nazi Nazi cola. cola. Uh, I kind of owe Mark Thomas for that. Uh, He told me that once. Not just me. Just me you. <laughs> just just you. It, was, you it was me in the aura more, sitting in the middle of the room and him on stage. That was all that was, <laughs> that was it. So are we going to, we should probably talk about a record this yeah. week. Yeah, so what my, are we doing this week, It was my choice. It was uh, From the Choir Girl Hotel by Tori Amos. Her fourth record? Her fourth record. Mm-hmm. I couldn't actually last week work out whether it was motel or hotel, but it is definitely hotel. Hotel, yeah. Um, is it choir girl or choir girl? Is there a space in choir girl? There's no space in choir There's no girl. space. Yeah. On the choir girl hotel. I don't know if... There's a space you... on the Spotify version. For... Yeah. We we notice that Spotify's quite often be... now that yeah. Spotify is never quite perfect. There's quite often... Definitely. Spellings yeah. wrong and stuff They've... like that, even on really big records. I mean, uh, that's one thing I, I suppose I was going to bring up, but I may as well bring it up now, is... Um, does she still? Does she have control of the records that, that she released on a major label? Because I know she's not on one anymore. Well, she has re-released records that were released on earlier. Yeah, and she's been labels. involved in their re-releases. Yeah. Mm. So I, th- I mean, I don't. She's worked across a, a series of labels as well. I yeah, mean, she, yeah. She's done the tour. She her first five, six records were on Atlantic, and she, and she was on Island. Three on Epic. Yeah. And then she did. There was like Universal sub subsidiaries like Republic. Deutsch Gramophone, Mercury Classics, and then Decca. Mm-hmm. Uh, Decca was the last one, Native Invader, but it's sort of distributed by uh, Universal. Mm-hmm. So she has she's done a tour of duty. I, I mean, I, I get the impression that playing. I, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I actually honestly don't know. I suppose mm-hmm. uh, maybe we should find out how acrimonious her splits were from them. But she's put out stuff. Yeah, and she's done multiple live recordings and bootlegs and stuff like kind of high quality bootlegs. Mm-hmm. So. It's just interesting because sometimes it can be attributed to just some internal record label, like just putting something in and making a typo without the artist having any real say over how it gets released in on the online format. Yeah, I mean, I never really even considered that it's entered in that way. I, I had this weird notion that it was like this crowdsourced thing. I, I didn't even realise. Yeah, no, it probably is. There will have been, you know, some interns sitting unpaid in an office in New York get told, oh, some MP3s. Uh, we've got some, you know, some nineteen ninety eight albums that we haven't put up. We should uh, get them on Spotify. Can you fill this shit in? Yeah, yeah. There'll be a, a, entire departments like the equivalent of doing the filing, just oh god, yeah. working through a pile. How many yeah. did you do today? Like performance based pay, like four hundred albums in one day. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Zero contracts for <laughs> the Spotify upload farm. Stinking. Sure, South Park will get to that in the next season. <laughs> Um, so Tori Amos, whose uh, birth name was Myra Ellen Amos, was born in North Carolina. By the way, did any of you guys have this same weird notion that she was somehow British and had gone to America? Because I, I thought that until... Yeah, I thought that too. And she's got a studio in Cornwall as well, which she's, kind of accounts for She's got for a house that. in She's England. married to an Englishman. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's got a house in England, she's got a house in Dublin as well. And 
seems to spend quite a bit of time here but yeah. I, I don't know why I just got this idea like originally did you think that still or I, like I thought that your... right up until we did the show that I oh, didn't actually ever research their background well Little Earthquakes was released in um, Britain first because she thought that they would be more receptive to her eccentric personality and I think that's just been the case ever since she yeah. obviously when she toured here or whatever came here she, be, she quite clearly must have become quite enamoured with the country and decided to stay in Britain um, but yeah I mean I always thought she was British as well, even though her voice isn't very British sounding, but that doesn't really mean anything. Do you know what I mean? Because a lot of British artists just sound American. Uh, sure. So. I mean, apparently, like, from very young, she was a bit of a savant. Uh, supposedly, she didn't need any piano lessons. Or I think her siblings got lessons, and she didn't. Like, she could play by ear by the age of two. Apparently, just as soon as she could basically reach the keyboard, mm. uh, she was writing her own little bits of music by the time she was three. And she says that she has this thing called chromesthesia, where she sees the music as lights and colours, and that informs her writing. And actually, her first um, project, Why Can't Tori Read, which we'll, we'll touch on in a little bit, was named because she was supposedly quite bad at sight reading due mm. to the lack of formal training. Just a, a really gifted musician, naturally. When she, I think she was doing like demos, her dad was kind of involved in her early career, and he had sent stuff to Universal. She ended up getting signed by Universal as just an entity and then moved to Los Angeles to, to pursue her career, which I think was in 1984. And she was about 21 at the time. Uh, she initially performed as Ellen, her middle name. And supposedly, maybe it's a bit of folklore, but um, the name comes from a friend's boyfriend saying that she looked like a Tory pine tree. <laughs> yeah, and she's kind of iconic I mean there are a lot of high profile very gifted female singer songwriters and I don't mean singer songwriters in a kind of strummy uh, yeah not in the cliched way but you know yeah, you've got Amy an entire Mann, generation Kennedy. but you've got Fiona Apple you've got Joanna Newsom you've got PJ Harvey and you've got people like Amanda Palmer who I'll, I'll mention a bit later on as well although she was concurrent with PJ Harvey and I'll actually I think there may actually be a fair bit of influence going the other way in that one uh, but certainly I think it'd be hard to argue that the likes of Joanna Newsom and Fiona Apple haven't been hugely impacted by Tori Amos I think a lot of female singers you hear especially in what current ones there's a lot of influence from Tori Amos's style there mm -hmm. even if they don't know it and, and she obviously the first thing most people say is that she was clearly influenced by Kate Bush and mm -hmm. she obviously was influenced heavily by Kate Bush I think actually some of her best moments are when she's closest to that Mm -hmm. um, she she combining her ear for songwriting with the colour and the kind of majesty a wee bit mm -hmm. of, of Kate Bush where she really lets rip and really kind of goes a little bit OTT but with a lot of ability to back it up yeah like, those are some yeah of it doesn't sound she pulls it off it doesn't sound yeah, cheesy or it doesn't sound too try yeah. hard yeah now, I think Tori Amos is in my informed and entirely valid opinion as a straight white male one of the most excellent role models especially for young female musicians mm. just for young women in terms of the consistency and the quality of her dialogue regarding women's issues throughout just her music from the start until now has constantly used a female voice has constantly addressed female issues whether it's like quite intimate and personal and biological or whether it's much more conceptual and even political uh, she's She's very much engaged with that throughout her career, but she's never done it in a way that has been anything other than complimentary to the music and and really quite genuine, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, it's, everything, whenever she speaks, it always seems just quite natural. Like, yeah. you know, that's just how she feels. It never feels like put on or... Yeah, I mean, her interviews as well, this is something we mentioned before as well. Like for someone that writes some really beautiful and very sad songs at times... She's really charming when you see her being interviewed. She comes across like a really quite funny and very intelligent woman, mm -hmm. albeit a little bit wired to the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I love the sincerity of her, her approach to, to women's issues because she's covered almost everything and never done it in that way where you go on stage in a leather corset in front of a giant 15 foot neon sign saying feminist she is a feminist she's a brilliant spokesperson and an amazing advocate for women her work with the art the rain the charity rain mm -hmm. r-a-i-n uh rape abuse and incest network i think it is is amazing uh, the stuff she's done and 
I think a lot of this, and this is a, this is kind of a little known thing about her. A lot of this stems from the fact that shortly after she'd moved to LA when she was twenty one, Tori Amos was raped by a fan uh, who'd been at one of her shows. She'd basically been playing this gig in LA in a bar, and there was somebody at the show. They'd obviously got speaking, and he had asked her, you know, could I could I hitch a ride up the road? Young female musician on her own. She'd said yes, and when they were in the car, he'd produced a knife. And he'd raped her at knife point. Um, and she she doesn't, I mean, when she's interviewed with it, she doesn't speak about it often. It's, it's kind of only a few interviews that where she's ever really touched on it. Uh, but she does talk about the fact that, she, one, she doesn't think she would have gotten out of it alive because he was talking about taking her home to his friends so they could all cut her up. Um, but he was really high, I don't know on what, mm-hmm. and supposedly stopped and tried to grab more drugs and it gave her a window to escape. But she also raised the issue of the rape through her music. Uh, there's a track in particular called Me and the Gun on Little Earthquakes, which is just her singing. Is it my right to be on my stomach a It's me and a gun and a man on my back. No. The sad uh, inversion of that is the fact, so the track's called Me and a Gun, she was raped at knife point, which uh, <laughs> it's just a, it's a, it's a kind of nice or ugly but nice useful metaphor for the cultural response to a woman talking about her sexual assault or rape, mm-hmm. where the fact that she says me and a gun and, and said, look, it wasn't a direct account of what happened to me, but it, it was a way for me to exercise my experience led to blogs springing up, as you can imagine, I'm sure, to refute her story, to pick apart the minutiae and what they perceived as inconsistencies in her story, not really taking on board the fact that it was a fucking song written in an imagined persona, as so but much metaphors stuff is. exist. And it's not even a metaphor, it's just a slight... It's just a different step away. ...tale of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. But using her experiences to inform it, and this somehow led to this sort of men's rights cascade of people... The theories... Exactly. And I think her experience with that, though, sad as it is to say it, has clearly lent something of a, an air of legitimacy when she plums the depths of those emotions. Like There is something really raw there when you hear her bringing those out. And there are moments, so again, we'll mention them in the songs when we start to break down the album I chose. There are emotions in there that I don't think can really be feigned. And yeah, it's it's a harrowing story. It's not unfortunately an unusual story but yeah she's a she's a really pretty compelling figure i might say as well she also is somebody that credits her kind of extrovert direction to the fact that so early on in her career she established a gay fan base Mm -hmm. she thinks that was one of the most positive and productive developments of her musical career um her dad took her to play in gay bars when she was like before she moved to la that was an audience that was really receptive and she just said the environment and it's just something about the audience response to the various, her experiments with her music encouraged her to be more extrovert, encouraged her to be more adventurous, encouraged her to, to, to work with characters. And the character thing is something that really comes up a lot. Had you guys listened to Tori Moss much before this? No, I'd heard Conflict Girl and that was it, so. <laughs> <laughs> this is not really, this is not really happening. Conflict Girl is a fucking massive tune. There's mm-hmm. also, by the way, there I, I can't not bring it up. There is a really, really excellent cover of Conflict Girl by the Discord band Jawbox. Really? This is not, this is not really happening. Uh, Jawbox on I think it's on their eponymous album there is a fucking tremendous cover of Conflict Girl and Conflict Girl you maybe don't take into account the weird timing of that song Mm -hmm. until you hear a band trying to play it but it's not particularly easy and that is a really great version but yeah that's that's the only one you'd heard you had any of the early stuff like any of the kind of big sort of swooping ballady singles no I never really came came to mind when I heard it to be honest she was she was big. Like, uh, my parents had little earthquakes on CD, and uh, and then obviously we 
taped that uh, and had it for the car because I didn't have a CD player in a car because we weren't rich. Did you like it? Um, so you're, yeah. you're a Kate Bush fan, so... Yeah, a big Kate Bush fan. I mean, I went through a stage when I was like 19 or 20 where I basically just re-bought a lot of the albums uh, that I'd listened to in the car. Yeah. You know, I was able to reappraise them on their own ground. I was like, the same. holy shit, yeah. quite a lot of my parents music was good yeah I got the whole rock set and Big Country back catalogs yeah Big Country was one of mine uh, Talking Heads stuff like that I always liked Tori Amos and it was the little earthquakes that I had and that's the one that I've always listened to because I suppose it has that nostalgia but also it's a fucking great record on its own yeah you know, it's to go back good. to it and that was kind of it I'd never gone much further because my parents didn't have any other Tori Amos <laughs> CDs. And yeah, I don't know. I just never got round to exploring her more. See, I, funnily I, enough. I think like one of the, like that was the stuff I heard first as well. And other than Cornflake Girl, which I really liked, I was aware that a lot of the stuff on Little Earthquakes and Under the Pink, which was the album that followed it, was very sort of piano led. And I found it a little bit hard to access it, hard to relate to it. When we were like preparing to do this show I was actually hoping we could maybe get a female voice on to talk about Tori Amos what she means to, mm-hmm. to female music fans uh, now don't get me wrong it wasn't exhaustive and I'm sure there'll be a number of people saying oh, you could ask me but I struggled like with some of the people that I know are more experienced at doing like podcasting and speaking mm-hmm. to find anybody that was a particularly big Tori Amos fan and that's including in speaking to women who are touring musicians now with music that I would say is reasonably close to it like Siobhan Wilson um, Siobhan's stuff sounds like it's informed by it but Siobhan is not particularly a big fan of Tori Amos and I think that some of that is perhaps for the same reason as me like I kind of had her pigeonholed and categorised as something this kind of piano songstress that did sort of slightly ethereal and floaty and eccentric music and occasionally went a little bit jazz or occasionally went a little bit cabaret and that stuff kind of left me a bit cold. The reason I've picked From the Choir Girl Hotel is because it's a completely different beast. It's a, it's a completely different direction with her career and I think it's incredibly important because before this she brought out Boys to Pelly, which was one of her biggest records and had Professional Widow, which was a massive single, which I thought is the other one you would have known, actually. Although it's, it was a remix of it, that. Exactly, it's an Armin van Helden remix. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think she was kind of writing herself into a corner a little bit. Okay, she used a lot of harpsichord and that, but there was a, it was still piano-led, very much the singer-songwriter woman. And with Quirgo Hotel, suddenly there was electronics in it. There was like programmed drums in it. There, were, there was a lot more experimentation with the production of it. And what she did, in my opinion, was kick open the doors of possibility on where she could then go. She gave herself so many more options with the following albums that she may have become a bit redundant without that album or maybe it would have come later but by that point it would have, it would have felt a little bit contrived it came at a great point in her career where she was still very vital and very contemporary and relevant um, and kind of cut an edge in the sense that we spoke about this she had a lot of like really quite famous friends she was like friends with people like Tool Nine Inch Nails the guy who drummed in Guns N' Roses uh, it's, it was quite interesting that she was moving in circles that were a lot more edgy and people gave her credit for it, and this album sort of brought that out. I it's think it's not one of the songs on under the end um, song for Pelly, isn't it? Does Bank focus on it? I can't remember the song. And I, I think that's an interesting element to her that's maybe a lot of people who aren't particularly involved in her catalogue or don't make that time because it is a lot of times. So it's 17 albums now or something like that. Uh, like, that don't make the time to really investigate it. That's a bit lost in them because it's easy to just see it as this one thing. I do think this album was somewhat informed by PJ Harvey. PJ Harvey just shortly before this had brought out the album To Bring You My Love and To Bring You My Love even though she was coming at it originally from a different angle the kind of garage rock Steve Albini vibe the third album that PJ Harvey did she experimented song to song and all these like different styles of mixing production it was really quite quite out there I mean there's there's things now like Working For The Man Come on, Billy. Billy. 
Danson. They're all really different in their feel and the, the album that she then followed that way as well is this desire again was this PJ Harvey opening up the possibilities of where she could go with her career and as we know she she did a lot of stuff to good effect and hopefully at, at one point we, we get to do a show on her as well but I think Tori Amos for me maybe I'm wrong but I think she saw not so much things she wanted to copy but I think she liked that idea of this woman is giving herself options and for me that's what this album does Hi folks, uh, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, this week, let's try something very slightly different. So there's like a silent majority of our audience out there that we've noticed. So we're getting some okay figures, especially in some unusual places. And we have people that we really love communicating with on the social media that are regular faces, that's great. But there's all these other people out there who we've never heard from and we would love to hear from you. Just, that'd be, just be cool, especially- Just say hi. Yeah, especially if you're from another country, that'd be mm -hmm. awesome. Uh, so we're not going to ask for money this week, although you know the, the drill with that. But we're going to ask that if you're from another place and you're not generally in touch or you're a bit shy, could you just tag one person, all right? So we know you're out there, tag one person in one of these foreign lands and that would be really cool to see where you are and who you are and just to get to know a bit about you mm -hmm. I mean I don't know anybody from Sri Lanka but <laughs> just in case you don't know where you can get in contact with us you can go to unsungpod.net you send us an email unsungpod at gmail.com it's unsungpod on Facebook Twitter and Instagram so just come and say hi and if the accents were preventing it we will tone it down <laughs> if we can David you, you can do American I sure can <laughs> <laughs> well Right on. Right on. <laughs> yeah, guys. brother. Bye for now. Thank you, folks. Now, I've prepared a whistle stop tour of Tori Amos's career. I'm going to take a little drink of water. I'm gonna, <laughs> Me too. And I'm going to race through this. Yeah, I'm excited to hear. Chris's opinions. <laughs> I'm going to race through this like the person at the end of the advert for medication. Uh, yeah, American medication adverts. American medication adverts or British uh, health life insurance adverts. Where or every side effect <laughs> is much worse than the thing you're trying to uh, treat. Please be aware. Result in coronary death and your house will be repossessed. So I'm going to do a Tori Amos version of that uh, right about now. So... Little Earthquakes wasn't actually Tori Amos' first album. Tori Amos' first album was called Why Can't Tori Read? Letter Y in a K. That came out in 1988. And it's the most 80s thing you'll ever hear. Uh, she disowned it for a while, although she did later, I think even just last year, in fact, it got re-released after she tried to make peace with it because it was clearly haunting her and people were listening to it anyway. Uh, I mean, it's pretty terrible. Uh, there's a couple of really standout moments on it uh, there's a song called Cool on Your Island which I think was a single which is probably just bad enough to be popular now in an ironic way and there's bands that are probably trying to sound like this um, there's a tune called Faith F-A-Y-T-H which is like vaporwave white hip-hop mm -hmm. which is totally bizarre and has a terrible sort of like rap part in it that is pretty hysterical I'll cut it in Um, basically, if you had, so if you had like Michael J. Fox and Molly Ringwald uh, in like a film about a minor strike set in like Queens in New York, uh, and they're all like addicted to playing Nintendo, and they're only wearing like Naf Naf and Benetton, the soundtracks by Kim Wilde, mm -hmm. maybe, and it kind of finishes with like a fight between. Margaret, a giant version of Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, 
the Ayatollah Khomeini and Mr. T. Mm-hmm. That still would only be half his 80s. This uh-huh. <laughs> sounds like a club night in SWG3 that you're <laughs> brainstorming. But yeah, it's not a great record, but it's pretty hilarious. And you should check it out even just for the lols. Our second album, or technically our first as a solo performer, is Little Earthquakes from 1992. It's like proper Tori Amos. The first track's a song called Crucify. which is reasonably well known by our fans and that was the one that had Smells at Teen Spirit as the B-side mm-hmm. on the single. The highlight on this album is a tune called Winter which is just amazing. About her dad really really beautiful bit of music um this is also the album that has me and the gun on it the one that i said it addresses the rape uh a tune called silent all these years as well about sort of related topics um uh, there's a tune on this called leather which is kind of piano led and a bit cabaret mm-hmm. and this is one of the ones i think i mentioned amanda palmer and her band uh, she was in a band called dresden dolls they had this kind of piano cabaret songstress thing going on and i think this really sounds or sets the groundwork for stuff like that I don't want to just steamroller you, Mark. You got any thoughts to throw in? And I'll jump on to the next one. No, oh, I like that. That's my favourite record of all that I heard. I like most of it. Precious Things are a really, really good song. Um, Crucify, as you say, brilliant. Um, tear in your hand. I think that's probably the favourite record of us that I heard. Cool. Um, after that was Under the Pink, 94, Cornflake Girls on that. It's a big tune. We mentioned that. The tune called Pretty Good Year. It's also tra- a single, yeah. Yeah, a track that's called good. Past the Mission, which is the one you were saying about mm-hmm. Trent Reznor, I think. Uh, there's a tune on it a third song is called Bells for Her and this is the highlight for me which is played on what they call a prepared upright piano a prepared upright piano is something where either things have been sat or things have been inserted like cutlery uh, or chopsticks or things like that into the strings to create like a weird muted kind of it almost sounds like a kid's toy Mm -hmm. it's a really really beautiful effect when she plays it and I I love the song because it's such a delicate and sparse song There's a song in it called God, which is probably the first time she gets kind of stompy. And there's like feedback and stuff like that with guitars. She actually got criticised in some of the reviews for trying to make pianos sound like guitars, which she then references later on uh, this album also closes with a song called Yes Anastasia it's really really nice but there's a, a later album called Gold Dust which is actually an album of like earlier songs performed with an orchestra and the version of An- uh, Yes Anastasia and that for me is better really sweeping and really beautiful can oh, I just say Under the Pink really stands sorry. up yeah just, just flag me up when yeah. you <laughs> that album still really stands up as well I think it's uh, got slightly less of that cabaret yeah. vibe a bit more intricate yeah it's beautiful but without having like for it doesn't have a winter it, it just yeah. doesn't have a song yeah. that's that 
disarmingly fucking good. Yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cornflake Girls a fucking banger though. Well, Cornflake Girls, yeah, but it's an upbeat sort of single, mm. and it was that mm. was a song that kind of made her over yeah. here as well. But it's not like Winter was like a haunting, mm. you know. That like I said in the past about that Spanish phrase, "touch the potato," where yeah. something really can molests your potato. That yeah, song, that potatoes. Touched <laughs> <laughs> Bruised uh, So Boys for Pelly Was in 1996 Boys for Pelly Was a, a big album For her As you said uh, There's the fourth track And it's a track Called Professional Widow Which I believe Is mooted to be About Courtney Love uh, But the album version I love the album version Of that song The album version Is fucking great It was the Armin van Helden uh, Star Trunk Funkin' Remix, mm-hmm. I think is the name of it, that uh, that hit the charts. And you still hear it. It's just it's totally eclipsed the original version of it, even though it's it's really good. Uh, that's the album where she starts to bring in a harpsichord a lot. Uh, the production's a little bit more risky. It's more interesting. There's tracks like Horses, which is really mm-hmm. sweet. Uh, Blood Roses, the harpsichord one, is nice. A tune called Caught a Light Sneeze Which is sort of That's, that's, pretty, that's a really good song actually. Yeah it's like a big beat in it mm-hmm. For the first time It's almost got a Bjork An early Bjork feel to it That yeah. song And the highlights for me, I would say, are either Hey Jupiter, which has almost like a Prince moment. I like that song a lot. Yeah, <laughs> did, you know, did you notice the Prince influence? Yeah. There? Prince fluence. Yeah. Uh, and my favourite on that is a song called Donut Song. Worst name but it's really beautiful and it's got this weird backwards sample that runs through it very, very subtly that just adds a whole other dimension to it. So, from the Quarry Girl Hotel... Oh, sorry, Dave. Um... It, it, just about Professional Widow mm-hmm. So Trent Reznor I couldn't work out What He blames Professional Widow On destroying His relationship With Tori Amos Not really Or he blames Courtney Love For destroying His re- He blames something Or somebody <laughs> To do with Courtney Love And Tori Amos And his friendship uh, And he wrote This song Starfuckers uh, From The Fragile Which the word starfuckers appears in Professional Widow. Starfuckers. Um, so there's, yeah, so yeah, there's like say. a whole link there. I can't just quite like work my da- Just like my daddy as well. Well, so. Exactly. There you go. Um, so yeah, there's a total link there. There's a tie but. in there somewhere. Uh, we've not been able to establish it 100%, but if you can comment on the thread uh, and let us know, that'd be pretty good. It'd be a bit of a reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Um, so the album after this is from the Choir Girl Hotel which we'll come back to in some depth the following album the fifth album is called To Venus and Back and that was in 1999 it was actually a double disc the second disc was a bunch of live versions this is an album by Tori Amos that I'd completely ignored um, because she has such a big back catalogue it's a lot to get to grips with and this was one that had completely passed me by this is the closest I came to changing my mind about the, the album I'd nominated because I'd already committed to From the Choir Girl Hotel thinking I'd more or less heard everything by her and not realising just how underappreciated uh, to Venus and Back is. It's Well, see, this is, I mean, I th- we'll talk about the sort of the 90s a little bit more when we're talking about the Choir Girl record, but um, like this is one where I think you can see a sort of uh, parallel with Bjork's work mm-hmm. in the 90s yeah, and that use yeah. of electronica and the sort of trip-hop influence and things yeah. like that. And they were both maybe, you know, trying certain things and then went down different paths obviously but it, this it, is maybe the closest they came 
Well, yeah, it's interesting actually, Dave, because I think this is the first album where songs appear where the vocal is still kind of a lead, but the vocal is also just an instrument. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like she, she's singing sort of amorphous tones and melodies that aren't like lyrically specific. They're not a narrative. Yeah, like the goal is the overall sound of the yeah, record rather exactly. than she's written songs with, uh, you know, tracks behind them. Absolutely. Um, there's a few really, really standout tracks in this. The, the opening song, Bliss, I think is a brilliant song, a great single. song Josephine which appears kind of halfway through the record is so understated and I, I fucking love it like I must have listened to that song dozens of times since we started researching this episode uh, there's also a song called Datura which is very soundscapey and I think kind of summons that kind of Bjork thing. Uh, as you say, loads more electronics continuing from the Choir Girl album which came before this. A track called Juarez, or Juarez, depending on where you are. is kind of what let's say trip hoppy which apparently is about the same subject as invalid letter department by at the drive-in all the women's bodies that were found in that part of mexico and the local authorities just not even investigating them the women who were traveling over the borders and the buses to work Mm -hmm. uh, in america uh there's a track called suede which is one of the synthiest things she does and then she finishes with a song called thousand oceans which is almost deliberately right back to everybody's preconceived ideas of tori amos They could fit in on any of the early albums, um, but I was really impressed with that record. And as I say, it was a, it was the only one that shook my faith in the choice of Choir Girl. After that, she brought out a record called Strange Little Girls. Now this was basically to get out of her contract uh, with Atlantic. Uh, and Strange Little Girls, I think, ca- calling back to what I was saying about her talking in women's voices, talking about women's issues. So she picked a bunch of songs which were basically by male writers, either talking about women or relating to issues to do with women and she decided to reinterpret them from a female perspective some of them are really good some of them are kind of miss the mark there's a version of heart of gold which is pretty dismal Uh, there's a version of Enjoy the Silence by Depeche Mode which is not very good not great uh, there is one that she got a lot of credit for is the reworking of 97 Bonnie and Clyde by Eminem I thought it was awful I thought that like that went down a treat with the critics <laughs> really really well received Uh, the one that completely stands out for me is the cover of Slayer's Rain and Blood. Yeah, that's uh, really good. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Genuinely really good. It, is, yeah. it totally is like a precursor to Chelsea Wolfe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely, it, yeah. It's, it's a great version and it really works the way she does it. Um, so yeah, Tori Amos, Raining Blood, mm. never thought we'd be recommending that, but check it out. So she got out of that contract and then she moved to Epic for her 2002 album Scarlet's Walk. This for me is one of her most beige records. Mm. 
it was received as like a, a, I say a return to form, I don't think she particularly left form other than that kind of covers album, but it was received really well by in some quarters. There's a song in it called Strange, which kind of sounds a lot like the song Wind of Change by the Scorpions at the start. Strange, thought I knew you well, thought I had read the sky, thought I had read a change in your it's kind of catchy, but it, it's, you can't shake that kind of stadium ballad thing. Uh, the, the record's, I'd say, over long. There's a track on it called Goldust, where she took the title for that later album. Doesn't really do much for me. It, there's one song on it called I Can't See New York, which I think I'd say is probably my highlight on it. It's quite a pretty tune. Um, it's got this weird, spooky, very nighttime, drowsy kind of vibe to it. I, I think is is quite endearing. But the record overall really struggled to hold my attention, and it was followed by an EP called Scarlet's Hidden Secrets, which I think was a, a collection in two thousand and four of stuff that hadn't made the album, which again doesn't do anything for me. Uh, two thousand and five, still an epic. She did the Beekeeper, which also I think features some of her worst work. I'd agree. Uh, yeah. Sweet the Sting sounds like Santana or something like that. And there's a tune in it called Sleeps with Butterflies. I would say is definitely a candidate for her worst tune. Uh, it sounds like a female version of a Lighthouse Family B side. <laughs> Is so totally bland. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, 2007. Thankfully, she sort of mixed it up a bit, and she brought out an album called American Doll Posse, uh, which was her playing. I think it's five characters, yeah, as, different Greek gods. Yeah, and it's like the the artwork in the sleeves tends to reflect the Scarlet's Walk was also a concept record as well to do with like going across America, I believe. American Doll Posse is a rock record, a bit angrier as well. Yeah, exactly. And it's the first time she had toured with a rock band since she'd done uh, Choir Girl Hotel as well. It's, it's far too long, though. It's 23 tunes, man. And what was she thinking? The opening track in this, Yo George, I don't think has aged particularly well. It's about George W. Bush. And I think when you're in an era where you have Donald Trump in the White House, you're forced to reappraise some of the hysteria that surrounded George Bush. But that said, I mean, the body count of George Bush was probably... I high. mean, very high. Yeah, yeah. So, I remember when that war happened. That yeah, was quite big. Absolutely. Which one? <laughs> actually, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That that film Vice that just came out. Um, that Cheney, Christian Bale. It's it's really good, and it does it does remind you just what kind of nefarious goings on uh, were were there. But I mean, Bush comes out of that looking quite pathetic. Rockwell plays him, I think, pretty mm. close to the truth, which is that he was ambitious and a little bit clueless and these really ambitious, manipulative men mm. kind of worked them like a puppet, which is, you know, debatably what's happening with Trump. It's just that it was Americans doing it with Bush, now it's Russians. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure. That that song seems very dated as a result, but it's only brief. Um, the production in that album, I think, is quite poor. It does. It's quite muddy. I don't think she really has adapted to doing a rock record. She has the vocals really quite prominent, mm-hmm. which is fine if you're doing piano-led balladry the way she was doing originally but if you're doing a rock album the power of the music has to be there and when you sing right above it it tends to make it sound dark and sort of indistinct and I think it suffers from that There's actually a couple of tracks that are they, they don't, they're not like a natural fit for Tori Amos. They're, they're decent songs. They just don't sound like her songs. Mm-hmm. Like if they'd been done by Dresden Dolls or or another band, any other band, would actually that's that's actually a pretty good tune. It, something just feels very forced about it, and as you say, it's just it just witters on for fucking ages. Yeah, I mean, the, the, in this again, the songs uh, there's a song called Teenage Hustling and a song called. You can bring your dog. I ain't 
really remind me of the Dresden Dolls and Amanda Palmer. And I think you can really see that branch of who she influenced starting to form. Any other thoughts on that record? Nah, I don't think so. Uh, 2009, she brought Abnormally Attracted to Sin, which in my opinion is her back to being pretty strong and pretty good and sounding comfortable. Uh, It was the first time that she'd kind of got rid of the concept album idea and had just made a personal record and I think it really shows. It feels very honest. There's some really, really nice songs in it. There's, there's a couple of decent ones. Welcome to England's pretty good and maybe California's pretty good. The highlights for me are back to back. There's a tune called Fast Horse, which is fucking great I love that song and the chorus in it if you listen to the chorus thinking about ABBA it's a very much a kind of ABBA style but like a, a minor key ABBA sort of Leo you're loving me style ABBA yeah. but it's very much that sort of branch of songwriting And then right after that is a song called Ophelia, which I think is really beautiful. Maybe California got to number one in Portugal. Did it? Mm-hmm. That's kind of odd, eh? Because it wasn't released in... Any anywhere else, but for some reason it went. To so that was the only place you could buy it. So well, yeah. <laughs> people from the states people flew to Portugal yeah. to buy that on single. Um, that's a decent song, but it, it it's not it's not amazing, but it's it's good. It's it's a good album. It's not one that really jumps out, but it's definitely her kind of feeling like she was back on track. That same year, she had an album called Midwinter Graces, which is kind of referencing the fact that her dad was a Methodist minister. It's a Christmas album, basically. It's a bunch of religious bollocks. The only saving grace is that the song Emmanuel is actually kind of pretty and showcases her voice really well. Ultimately, album can kind of fuck off a wee bit. <laughs> uh, that was followed in 2011 by Night of the Hunters. Uh, Night of the Hunters was kind of a concept album. She was like drawn on people like Bach, Chopin, uh, Debussy, Schubert. She cites him as well. It was written or inspired by themes of classical music, sometimes using refrains from classical music interpreted into like almost like pop music, other times just the style, emulating the style of that musician and the piano work. I think it's worth bearing in mind that that album comes the year after Joanna Newsom brought out Have One On Me, and that level of proggy eccentricity seems to have, again, a bit like the PG Harvey thing, I think the feedback, I think it seems to have, have, have rubbed off on Tori Amos. She's seen Joanna Newsom arrive, clearly influenced by her earlier work, and now doing something that's a bit more interesting, mm-hmm. and I think she kind of wanted a little bit of that. Or maybe to kind of like, I'll show this upstart that I can do that as well. Uh, it's pretty good in places, it's not massively memorable, but it, it it's nicely played, it sounds nice. One thing that's really interesting on it is her daughter sings on a few of the tunes, uh, Natasha Holly, who I think must have been really quite young at the time, uh, including one of the songs, uh, Job's Coffin, and she sounds more like Joanna Newsom than Joanna Newsom. <laughs> It is crazy. Like, it really does sound just like Joanna Newsom. Um, after that was Gold Dust, the album that I said was like orchestral reworkings. Uh, that's got a version of Winter on it. It's got a version of a song called Marianne on it that are decent. Oh, 
Highlight I still think is the version of Yes Anastasia, uh, which is better. I thought flavour was really good. It's not bad. It's it's quite a nice record for a different spin and things. Uh, pretty grandiose. Uh, they f- she followed that in 2014 by Unrepentant Geraldines. I have to admit, I'm not as familiar with this album. I tried to get into it. It's not incredibly gripping music. The track Weatherman is pretty decent. Mm. And then in 2017, she brought out an album called Naked and uh, <laughs> Naked Invader, mm. Native Invader. This one caught me a wee bit off guard because I left it till the end of the research, thinking it's late era. She's a wee bit past it. The first track in that, Reindeer King, is wonderful. Like, actually, I like this album. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Like, I, I was, I need more time with this album because clearly it was the last one I researched for this. But I've been walking about for the last two days listening to it, and I'm increasingly realising it's it's really, really interesting. And that first song is up there. Like, I'm going to put together a playlist, obviously, for the listeners for this as we're trying to do now. That first tune is on there. It's it's every bit as good as some of our early stuff. So yeah, anything jump out of our back catalogue for you guys? I mean, no. I, an interesting thing. When I was looking at about uh, Midwinter Graces, mm-hmm. and she said something about it, which I thought was quite interesting about her relationship with her labels and how we were talking about it earlier a little bit. Her late 90s stuff, I remember whenever you read a review or a preview of what was coming out, it was always like, you know, Tori's a bit pissed off with her major label and the workings of major labels. She just wants to go and record what she wants to record. But then... When she was talking about uh, Midwinter Graces, that sort of weird Christmassy religious one, uh, she said, "My father wanted to do that. Wanted me to do this. I didn't want to be disrespectful. I just did it unironically." But I that album apparently began as a suggestion by uh, Doug Morris, who's the CEO of Universal Music Group, mm. um, and apparently, according to Amos, he just said, "You should just do this." Like in the next two months you should just do this before Christmas uh, and she said you know Doug looked at me it was March and he said I'm 70 and I want you to do this you can do this you've been doing this for your whole life he inspired me he's been able to have these com- conversations with me since the mid 80s he pushed me to start writing little earthquakes he's been in my life for so long so although she's had this changing relationship with labels the fact that she arrived in LA in the mid 80s as this sort of malleable person you know talent but talent but they weren't sure what they were going to do with her and then what has happened is she's been allowed to blossom and kind of do what she wanted obviously comes from the fact that she's got a really strong personality and a really strong relationship way through all those mid-level management structures you know right to the very top and the the very she respects them but they also respect her and I think it's a very interesting thing she's not a tool of the the system. Of the yeah. system. I think that is totally touching on something significant about why I think she's such a good role model as well. Because for better or worse, she is the author of her own material. She does work with writers. She's worked with her original guitarist for years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, bass as well, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. but she has been allowed to to write, say allowed, they have backed her in her own material, even when it's maybe going through periods where you're like, this is a bit of a risk, this isn't quite as good. And that's what music used to be. You know, that's what it was. That's why the people you respected, you respected because they didn't always hit the target. They took Mm. chances, but they were doing it without cynical like designs. Yeah, you look back at the history of rock music uh, and you look at those individuals that are allowed to release and release and release. You know, there's always going to be shit there. Absolutely. (laughs) And that's fine. You know, Neil Young has got plenty of shit. Bob Dylan's got plenty of shit. Tori Amos is up there with them. And she's got, you know, yeah, she's got some Duff records, but she's been allowed to experiment and use the system to 
to her own advantage mm-hmm. to be able to experiment. But, you know, she, she's always had control. And it does show that it's not like the system is inherently doomed to never produce anything of, of value. Mm-hmm. It it can. It's It's about insisting on certain standards and her insisting on the fact that I am Tori Amos, I will write this music. That's it. That 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 is I'm gonna be responsible for my own career, whether it goes well or not. And I can't I don't I don't think it's as consistent as it was, but I do really respect her as a musician. Yeah. Because of setting that standard and sticking with it. As you say, I I think there's something that comes across just from her as a person anyway that makes it seem like the respect is earned she's very smart does seem like she can kind of handle herself in those confrontational situations and as we said even just in her life experiences she's fucking been through quite a bit one of the things about Choir Girl Hotel is that it addresses one of multiple miscarriages that the woman had and I think she is somebody that is just yeah she's developed a bit, bit of a thick skin and these big bosses of these big labels you know are she's not intimidated are not, yeah exactly it's, it's admirable Next week we will actually be discussing the record from the Choir Girl Hotel, so please come back and listen and vote. Cheers. <laughs>